I'm Richard Pena, the program director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I also happen to be an associate professor of film studies at Columbia University, so it's a great pleasure to be able to uh, score one for my two institutions this evening by being part of this uh, evening on film and citizenship, this discussion that has been put together as part of this uh, great, great program that's been assembled around the world. And here to introduce this program, to say a few words about it, we have the mastermind behind the whole event, uh, the number of events that have happened, the director of the Arts Initiative at Columbia. Please welcome Gregory Mosher. Thank you, Richard. I'll, I'll be very brief. Uh, I'm sure many of you have been to other Havel at Columbia events so far. We've had Orhan Pamuk in an evening with Arthur Danto talking about liter literature. Easy for me to say. Literature and citizenship. Um, the Havel events go on for another three weeks. There's a website, which I suppose is probably on this program somewhere. I want to thank the members of the House Committee who are here tonight and say that I'm particularly thrilled to be here with Richard, who's been a friend for 30 years, first in Chicago and then when I was across the street at Lincoln Center and, and now at Columbia. Um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. We've, we've, it was important to us to uh, have partners um, for these series of events. So we've been at the Apollo Theater for the music event and we're out at MoMA. We did the literature event with the nation and it's been a really thrilling part of all of this. I'm, I'm honored to be here tonight. Incredibly excited about this panel. I want to thank you ahead of time. Um, for being part of this and uh, have a great time tonight. Thanks. Okay, so let's uh, get down to the business at hand. We've been able to put together, I think, a fairly extraordinary panel of people to talk about the, some of the issues around the whole notion of film and citizenship. We have coming down the aisle, I will introduce them as they get closer. First, also a professor at Columbia University, producer of films such as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, Brokeback Mountain, The Constant Gardener. Please welcome Mr. James Seamus. A producer and director of a wide range of films dealing with everything from AIDS to violence and an upcoming film in Abu Ghraib. Please welcome Rory Kennedy. even though Michael Moore didn't invent the political film, somehow you can almost date political cinema in the United States before and after Roger and me. Please welcome Michael Moore. <laughs> Let me begin uh, just a little quote from uh, a favorite film, How Green Was My Valley. In that film, there's a great scene in which the miners, the workers at the colliery, are talking about forming a union. And they're kind of waiting for the arrival of the local minister, played by Walter Pidgeon. And much to the surprise of everyone, Walter Pidgeon says, it's a good idea to start a union. And he talks about because you should form a union because forming a union is your right. But remember, with rights come responsibility. In a sense, one could say that here in the United States, we have rights for expression, for argument, for political discussion, opinion. What responsibility comes with that? What responsibility must there be for media artists? In a certain way, we could say all artists, but considering the role that film and television photography have in not only telling us about our world, but in many ways defining our world, what special responsibilities perhaps do people such as our guests this evening who work in media arts have in terms of 
that notion of responsibility? Is that a word that should apply to them, should apply to all artists, and what do they think it means for, for them and their work? Let me start, if I may, with James Seamus. I'm gonna pass. Um, yeah, because I'm kind of like the fiction guy a bit up here, so it's a different, you know, there isn't apples to apple, orange, orange thing, but, with, which has to do with, uh, uh, on the one hand, political documentary and television work and media work in general, uh, when there's an explicit and manifest um, uh, you know, political element to it, I think that's a very specific discussion. Um, and on the other hand, I, when you do go into the world of the fake and the fictional, it's somewhat of a different discussion. I mean, it might, the discussions might men, meld a bit, and I think they should, as we'll probably see they will. Um, but uh, I, I was thinking about the topic today, and I, I actually uh, think that it is, um, I think it's insidious, uh, and actually a really bad idea to think that media artists and filmmakers have some special responsibility. Uh, I think it's a bad, uh, as citizens, I think it's a bad idea, and I think it's, it gets very boring uh, very quickly, uh, and so I'll stop. Um. Well, I, I think as a documentary filmmaker, I feel, um, you know, I think there's a, a, a range of different types of documentary films out in the world, and I happen to focus on social issues. And I think um, as a filmmaker who focuses on social issues, that, that it is a form of journalism. It is that that type of documentary is a form of journalism. And so in that respect, I do feel like there is an obligation, as there is among journalists, to inform the public. Um, and I, I certainly feel that obligation. To me, when I think about citizenship, I think that it means a commitment to preserving this country, to preserving democracy. And I don't think you can do that without an informed public. Um, I think most of us would agree that you know, in these times, it's very difficult to get information, meaningful information from the mainstream media. And I think there are a lot of reasons why that is. I think one of the big reasons is the, uh, the abolishment of the Fairness Doctrine in 1988 by Ronald Reagan, which basically did a number of things, including consolidating the, uh, the businesses that own the media to a very small number of businesses. We now have about six or seven major corporations who, owned, who own virtually all of the mainstream media in this country, from radios to print, um, as well as broadcast. And that is very concerning. I think in addition to that, you know, just for an example, Clear, Clear Channel that used to, in 1995, which is, a, you know, that maybe some of you are familiar with it, used to, uh, it's a very kind of right-wing, um, radical, group of people who own that, and, and you know, in 1995, they owned 40 radio stations. Today, they own 1,100, um, and, and it's really narrowing and homogenizing the content of the material that's coming to the general public, which I find to be very concerning. The other thing that, that, that uh, abolishing that doctrine did in 1998 is it basically said that the media and the news programs no longer have to serve the public interest and they can go out there and make money. So what happens in newsrooms is instead of people saying, okay, what's most newsworthy? What is the information we need to get out to the public? They're saying, okay, what's gonna sell the most advertising and what's gonna get 
um, the most money in our corporation. And so what we're seeing is, you know, very sensationalist stories and sex scandals and, you know, discussions about who's getting divorced and why. And we're not seeing real information that is meaningful. And I find that myself to be very, very concerning. A lot of people ask me why documentaries are so popular these days, and I think the answer is in part because of, of Michael Moore and making them so much more entertaining, but also because I think there's a void out there for real information. And I feel that um, documentaries have a special place in getting that information out. And I think about, um, you know, Fahrenheit 9-11 and, you know, the fact that we have to go to the theater, which was such an extraordinary film, the fact that we have to go to the theater to see what's going on really in Iraq and what role this presidency is and, and what their interest is in that war um, and that we're not getting that information on the nightly news, that we have to see that film to see really what George Bush's response was when the World Trade Center collapsed, that he sat there for 10 minutes, which was the first time I saw that footage, you know, reading a book about goats. I mean, you know, that we're not getting this information to me is, is deeply concerning and I do feel an obligation in film to try to, in documentaries, to try to get the information out to the public because I don't think you can have a real democracy without an informed public. Um, and I'll just say one other thing which is, you know, to support that point which is, you know, you think about going into Iraq and that over 70% of the people in this country thought Saddam Hussein was responsible for the World Trade Center collapse. And that number was even greater for the people who watch Fox News and you think, well, you know, if people knew that there was absolutely no connection between Saddam Hussein and the World Trade Center, would we be in Iraq? And I think the answer might be no. And, and you know, you, and that's, that's why it's so important to get this information out to the public. And, you know, I don't think many people are doing it other than documentary filmmakers and you don't have that kind of outlet. So, I disagree. <laughs> I agree with everything you said. Um, except for one thing, that it was actually the Democrats and the um, Communications Act of 1996 which actually snowballed corporate conglomeration of media in this country to the extent to which we have today. That's true, and but it started in 1988 with the, with the collapse. Of, yeah. That's, <laughs> it was both of those Clinton things. Clinton Gore really finished it off. Yes, they did. They topped it off. Um, you know, if 70% if of the American public believes that Saddam was responsible for the World Trade Center, um, that's an interesting question that you raised, uh, James. What, what, um, and Richard, what responsibility, if those of, if those of us who are artists um, or who have the means to use forms of communication um, to enlighten people, um, do we have a responsibility to do that, especially when 70% of our fellow citizens live in the dark? Um, and if we've been given the means, the talent, the, the foot in the door, whatever it is, to be able to um, get them to perhaps think a little differently or to question what's going on or whatever, um, uh, do we have do we have a, a sort of a personal or moral responsibility? I mean, I, I, I uh, you know, I, I, I tend to obviously agree with with um, with Rory on this, but I. I um, 
I, um, you know, the, the, you didn't want to answer this because of the, you're a fiction guy, but the best political films I've seen this year are, have been fiction films, starting with uh, V for Vendetta, um, United 93, um, which even though it was marketed as something that wasn't political, I thought it was extremely political for taking the brave um, position of just showing in their way what they believe happened without, without a partisan political position, but, um, um, but to show the hijackers and murderers as human beings, uh, because I think that's a political act in these times to not demonize um, those who would commit such acts, because we don't, we'll never understand why those acts are committed if we separate them from the mass of humanity that we also uh, belong to. Um, Talladega Nights, one of the best political films I've seen uh, this year. Uh, I don't know if many of you have seen it. Uh, it's, uh, it's hilarious, and they, they did some very brave things of, of saying some, th some things to a mass audience of NASCAR fans, uh, with Sasha Baron Cohen playing the French race car driver, and uh, walking into the bar and asking Will Ferrell, you know, what, did, what have you ever given the world besides George W. Bush? And, uh, and Will Ferrell responds, Chinese food. And, <laughs> and then John C. Riley says, Jimmy Changas. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a lot of that <laughs> in the film where it just, I, uh, uh, they say to him, they say back to the French guy, you know, uh, what, uh, why have you come to this country? Is it our fine education system? And then Riley goes, no, it's got to be our great healthcare system. And, um, and I think when, when Hollywood filmmakers do subversive things like that to get a mass mainstream audience to start questioning or thinking a little bit about what's going on, I think that's a political act. So um, I, um, uh, you know, I feel, to answer your question, Richard, my first responsibility is because I've chosen to be a filmmaker and not a politician, is that I need to make um, a film uh, that is entertaining and enjoyable. I'm asking people to get a babysitter and spend a lot of money to get out of the house for the night. They've worked hard all week, um, and this is their only time out, and I'd like to give them a couple of hours where they can laugh or cry or think or whatever, get enraged, whatever emotion, leave the theater, knowing a little bit more, uh, maybe feeling they should do something, I don't know, 10% of them feel that way. That's a huge accomplishment. Um, but, uh, but primarily, if I, if I felt I just wanted to say something about Bush or the war or whatever, I, and, and wanted to just do things politically, then I would get involved more politically. I'd run for office, I'd you know, start an organization, I'd do those things. Um, I went to the seminary in high school. I, you know, that's another way I could go back to that. Well, not that. that yeah, too late, and <laughs> it's a criminal organization that protects... It's never too late. <laughs> well, yeah, we got a lot of problems with the Catholic Church, but, uh, um, but, uh, but uh, you know, if you just wanted to give a sermon about what's right or wrong, uh, that's another way to go. But by choosing to be a filmmaker, I think your first responsibility is to entertain, and I think the reason a lot of polit political films, especially political documentaries, don't work is because they, um, they put the politics first and the art second. 
And um, when you do that, if you let the art suffer, you'll never be able to convince people of the politics. So you first and foremost have to make a good movie, an engaging movie, a movie that entertains people and makes them feel like it was worthwhile to spend that Friday night uh, watching that movie. If you do that first, you have a better chance of bringing people along on the political level, I think. That's, that's my sense of it. James, let me go back to you. I mean, obviously in your position at Focus Features, people come to you with projects. Clearly there'd be things that you would read in a script or in a project you'd say, I couldn't, be, I, couldn't stay, I couldn't support that. I, couldn't, I wouldn't allow you to say that, or I wouldn't want to be involved in a film in which a filmmaker that I was supporting was putting forth this position. Or how would you deal with that? Could you give me an example? Uh, yeah, I mean, suppose there was a film that for you, someone approached you that had images of uh, Muslims that you considered really offensive, that the attitude towards whatever, you know, something was a hijacking or something, unlike, say, you know, United 93, that there was something truly offensive about the approach that this filmmaker wanted to, and it could be that they wouldn't come to Focus Features with such a project, but if they did, or if they said something that you felt was, I just don't think that's really true, or anything along those lines, how would you deal with that as, as someone who produces? You mean would I fund right-wing propaganda right. or a racist movie? Right. No. How about something that you disagreed with, but that you felt was not perhaps racist? You mean like if they kill the kid at the end and I think it should have a happier ending? I, I don't know. I really find the framing of the discussion, uh, I actually agree with about 92% of what you said. So, um, but most, almost 95. But, um, but I find the framing really difficult here because you know, we talk about there's a special responsibility, you know, the, the, you know film and citizenship, and I'll talk about, you know, fiction film. And, and to me, you know, if it's citizenship, that means it implies democracy. Um, even the idea that you're going to single out this as a discussion, you know, in a weird way, uh, uh, structurally, gives everybody else a pass. It's like, well, film artists, you know, document, they have an obligation to, you know, share the truth with other people and do it in a way that entertains, therefore entices them to come over to you. Well, Politicians should do that. They can't be, if they're boring, if they're saying the right thing, but they're dull and they're ineffective and boring, they're stupid, they shouldn't be in office. So they maybe, is their first responsibility entertainment too? Well, maybe, actually. Um, and meanwhile, it, it, like everybody else, if it's democracy, then the thing about democracy is you're, you are responsible. Your willful, stupid ignorance about Iraq, Saddam Hussein and 9-11 is to a certain extent a structural problem created by uh, the monetization of politics in this country, uh, a process that I think has moved even faster under, unfortunately, the Democrats than, in a weird way, the Republicans. They've just have managed to hijack it more effectively. But we have structural issues, but we have, a, we have a polity that doesn't really give much of a shit at the end of the day until the crisis is so huge that it's rubbed in their faces. And then they kind of act accordingly within a very specific framework. But everybody should have that responsibility. So I don't know why... People like, should Talladega Nights have been made, or should it not have been made if it didn't have those five jokes that were subversive? Well, I don't know. But maybe, it, you know, yeah, the people who made it, they were out there making it, they threw in a couple of jokes. Probably. It, it, yes, it would have been just as entertaining of a film without those five jokes. But, that, but um, the fact that the filmmakers chose to take that risk to put it out there and to, to, have, the, uh, to have Sasha kiss Andy Richter uh, as his wife, um, 
in a film that was directed toward a NASCAR audience, I thought was a very brave thing. And I'm sure that there were people at the studio that questioned whether or not, you know, they should go that far. Until they got the test scores back from the research screening in Atlanta, and they said they laughed a lot, and they let it fly. Right, because every NASCAR family has a gay member, and uh, and <laughs> people are have are increasingly uh, less intolerant. Uh, not quite yet, but starting with Arizona last week, you know things will start to get bit by bit better. I that's my hope. When you were doing Brokeback Mountain, did you think about what the effect would be in terms of what kind of intervention this would make in kind of the overall discussion about gay rights or the image of gays in the U.S.? Well, I, honestly, I was hopeful. Look, I mean, I don't try to pursue evil in the world. I, you know, so I, my films, whether it's Content Garden or Brokeback or Catch a Fire, which somebody here saw. So we try to be with the good guys, and we, but, but we really, um, so with Brokeback, yeah, of course, I really had hoped that it would have a positive uh, uh, impact, but it, and like I said, the, the first job, you know, nobody would have talked about the movie if it was a lousy movie, so the first job was, of course, to, to make a movie that spoke in the language of the commons, you know, that had a kind of currency that could translate if it were possible to do that, um, while still staying very true to those characters, you bet, yeah. But at the same time, I have to say, I mean, from day one in making the movie, and it was very specific in the process of the development, the financing, the production, and the marketing of that picture, I, I said to everybody to come, I said, I don't really care about convincing some homophobic asshole to be nice to some to gay people. Well, I, that just wasn't my job. Uh, on the other hand, if there were young gay people living in small towns who suddenly their communities were seeing this movie and talking about the film and embracing it, that to me was a great thing. So, you know, it wasn't a piece of political persuasion in the sense of we have a kind of policy prescription, prescription, we want to push it, here's what we're doing to push that, but it really was trying to change the frame of a kind of discourse that would actually empower individual agents, that is say, in particular young gay people, I thought, and, 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 and gay lesbian folks in general, um, to, you know, say, hey, here we are, you know, kind of that, that, that sense of visibility. One thing you mentioned in terms of democracy that's really been, I think, a great development of the last 10, 15 years, great in the sense of just sort of wide-reaching, is the whole kind of introduction of the blogosphere, the whole idea that now, in fact, many people can make movies or they can go on the web or they can suddenly, the grounds for opinion, and while on the one hand, as Rory says, the mainstream media gets narrower and narrower, we have at the same time this kind of opposite process whereby you can read thousands of opinions about just about every conceivable subject if you want on the internet. What's your feeling about this and in what way does it, this kind of new level of information impact all your work? Whoever. Go ahead. <laughs> um, well, I think that, I mean, I th I'm, I'm a big fan of the internet and I do think that it has the potential of, um, and, and, and I think it already has had the effect of ha getting um, information out there in a less filtered manner. Um, and that it's really a system that operates based on um, kind of mass response to certain information as opposed to one entity that is filtering it and getting it out to, um, to you know, potential consumers. Um, so I think it has, you know, enormous potential to, to really diversify a little bit more. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm very hopeful about it. 
Michael? Well, I think uh, the new technology has also made it um, um, easier for someone who, um, uh, you know, didn't go to film school or doesn't live in New York or L.A. to take that technology and express themselves on video, making their own um, short films or long-length films or whatever. I think that's, you know, it's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing. It's not. It's not. It doesn't mean that that's that everything that comes out of that is good. Most of it. You know, and you'll talk to you know you run a film festival, but you know the the ones that take a lot of submissions, you know Sundance or whatever, they'll they'll get I don't know two or three thousand submissions now of films. I don't know how they watch all those films, uh, and, and you know most of it isn't very good. So, um, but uh, yeah, I think anything uh, that puts this into the hands of uh, more people and cuts out the middleman, uh, I think that's a, I think it's a good thing, and. Um, and I think you know this ownership of media by a few companies is not a good thing. Um, and I'm always amazed at those who are the biggest supporters of capitalism and free enterprise. Uh, actually, their perfect world, their nirvana, is to eliminate all the competition and to be the only standing auto company, the only standing <laughs> film studio, the only standing whatever. Um, I mean that that's in their perfect world to buy up the others or beat them down into bankruptcy. Um, leads to a, uh, you know, uh, this sort of monolithic uh, uh, form of uh, this, this kind of capitalism that ultimately isn't really about free enterprise, but about uh, uh, just enriching the very few. So, With the recent election, and I have the feeling that we have a few Democrats on stage, I'm wondering what you feel, again, now that another party has come into more control, a party perhaps that at least potentially has the ability to reflect perhaps some aims or ideas that you have, does your responsibility or does your role, your work as filmmakers change? I mean, when you have an enemy, when you have the sort of opposition or you can put yourself as artist, as opponent, which is maybe a, a role everybody knows or, or feels, but now suddenly there's a party there that potentially you can work with. Does this begin to change in terms of how you work? Uh, should do you begin to measure your criticism, thinking that maybe I shouldn't be too negative, maybe I should see how I could support them because these are better guys than the other guys, or something like that? Here's a test drive. Okay, so I'm assuming we're in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It's a Havel celebration that probably, you know, the vast majority of folks here did not vote the Republican ticket uh, three weeks ago, and the vast majority of folks here were, were against the death penalty we're probably suspicious of NAFTA and for workers' rights. Um, we're for equality, marriage equality rights for gay and lesbian people, I would assume. I assume we think Walmart's labor practices suck. Um, I assume we're against the war in Iraq. I assume that our stance towards Iran is one of diplomacy and not to the hard right of uh, George Bush in terms of saber rattling and threatening preemptive strikes. Um, and I assume that probably, what, 80% of us voted for Hillary Clinton who has sponsored, you know, flag burning bans and everything I just said, the exact opposite. And so if there were a Martian anthropologist who actually landed here tonight and said, these are people who self-define themselves as people who are engaged as responsible citizens through the exploration of either their production of art or their consumption of it, as political agents who stand absolutely and fundamentally opposed to all the things I just listed, 
And yet many of us here went out and enthusiastically voted for somebody who has been fighting and fighting very effectively against everything I just said. Um, it's that gap, which I think is an aesthetic gap. That is to say, there's a gap of, of, of image of what we are and the construction of a real explicitly political space which allows people to exercise their agency that is really what disturbs you. And I, again, I think the framing of this discussion is part of that. I really do. Well, there wasn't really an alternative to Hillary Clinton, was there? Uh, well, I'm a Working Families Party member myself, and not a Democrat, but, um, but, uh, but Clinton, was. Was, Clinton was on their line. But there was the green, there was the, there was the green candidate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know. and, but that's the point. This is how it always works, isn't it? There wasn't the possibility. There was, and this goes back to the hovel Kundera debate, 77, over the Chartist movement, where you know Kundera was pointing out to him, he said, I'm against all you artists getting out there and trying to do stuff that's so outside the pale because it'll never work and you're going to make yourself look like idiots. You have no ability to construct a discourse that functions within the system that's effective. Everything you do, in fact, gives a rebound of repression back into the social structures that you're trying to fight against and is, in fact, worse for it. And what you should do is simply pursue your thing and don't make a fool of yourself. And I think that it's the power precisely of that kind of thinking that there is no alter. We don't have it. We can't. And, and, and instead of really foregrounding, as I think we must, as citizens, you know, there was uh, uh, things like instant runoff voting, uh, uh, the attack on corporate personality and corporate free speech, all these things which the party system is working to fight against that keeps us in this little box. So I think that there is a, there is a sense in which we have to make, pardon my French, assholes of ourselves much more in order to kind of break open the little seams and cracks. And one way to do that is precisely the question those, you know, and again, I'm, is, I love, believe me, I love subversive, I, I, I go to movies and that kind of reading of, of mainstream Hollywood cinema, that quote, subversive moment, I, is, is, is complete candy for me. Um, and this is what I do when I go to Hollywood movies, the same thing. But I think that those are not enough in a sense, and of course they aren't, I mean, we have Michael Moore Kennedy here, that's much more going on. But I think somehow the connecting those two things, um, the political space and the aesthetic space has to be done in a much more, in, uh, I think much more, um, uh, productive way, which I can get into later. I'll, I'll stop now. I think the election last week uh, wasn't so much for the Democrats as it was a national referendum against the war and against Bush. And um, people were going to go in and vote for the Democrat, no matter if the Democrat was, you know, a ficus tree, um, to use a... Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, I've never voted on the straight party line in my life, um, and that's what I did last week. I just plunked down on the, I, I live in Michigan, so I just plunked on the, the Democrat, and uh, I didn't really care who they were, because it wasn't about who they were. It w really was about sending a very loud and clear message. Um, the Democrats um, are really a pathetic mess. Um, everyone, I think, knows that. Um, they are spineless, uh, they are enablers. Uh, the reason we're in part in this war is because of their enabling of Bush and not standing up to him. Uh, the 25 or was it, I think 23 senators, there were only 23 Democrats of the, how many did they have, 45 or 46 in this last Congress, you know, that voted against the war when, uh, you know, when Kerry and all the others uh, voted for it, and your uncle and the the brave you know minority that um, wouldn't vote for it. 
So uh, it's going to require now a lot of effort and work to stay on top of them um, and to make sure they do the right thing because uh, I don't expect them to. Um, Hillary Clinton um, was crucified for trying to get us to talk about national health care 13 years ago and then as soon as she was crucified that was the end of the discussion. And, um, and now she is the second largest recipient of money from the pharmaceutical and health insurance uh, industry. Um, so it's a, big, it's a big job in front of us to sort of rein these people in and get them to do the right thing. But, you know, it's interesting. I just, speaking personally, Richard, that, um, you know, it, it seems that, that, the, that the largest audiences I've had for my work have been during a time when, you know, <laughs> the bad guys are in power and the so-called good guys are in power. Um, it goes the other way. Um, uh, you know, when Roger Mee came out, George the first was in the White House, and um, and then it wasn't it really till you know when I wrote Stupid White Men, when this George came in, then Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit. But you know what happened in that large space in between to try and get to try and keep TV Nation on the air or to try and um, uh, you know get the other films out. It was it was much more difficult. Um, because I think there was a perception, especially amongst liberals and liberals in this industry, that you know you don't want to go, you know, too much against this. And so, you know, um, when I wrote a book during the Clinton administration and talked about the Telecommunications Act and that, that book wasn't as successful as a book when Bush is in office and it's called Stupid White Men. So um, it's an interesting question because I think that. Generally, liberals are afraid to, you know, we're so nervous and we got a little bit of power now and let's, let's be careful and let's not lose it and we don't want to attack and whatever. But I, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. And, and, um, and I'm not a Democrat. Um, you know, I'm, I'm way beyond wherever. I don't know how the, the line works these <laughs> days, but whatever it is, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a Democrat. James, uh, judging on what you said, what would you think then in terms of, I mean, do you think the effect of a given work, a given film can best be local on a very specific issue that, in fact, any kind of political statement you're going to make that's going to reach a large audience is going to have to necessarily be so watered down and so generalized that, in fact, if you really want to talk about something specific, a specific issue, you somehow have to focus it very, very narrowly. saying that Brokeback Mountain was watered down? I'm asking you. Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, no, I, look, I, again, it's very difficult for me because, you know, look, we know that, uh, again, outside of the, because we have this media thing, but then we have the art issue, and I'm, I'm actually very interested in the art issue um, at, in and of itself. Uh, uh, and and we've, we know that debate a little bit, you know, which, which we've inherited uh, a bit out of the debates out of Eastern Europe. Uh, during the coming to terms with the end, the run-up to and the end of, of uh, the communist totalitarian regimes there. Um, and certainly Havel was a major part of the framing and the kind of heroics of that debate. And uh, in that situation, I think that deb debate worked very well under those terms. And even beyond it, we have so much to learn from that debate. But I think that, that and by that debate, I mean, okay, on the one hand, you've got the artist must be committed. That, that, that is to say the artist must speak 
to and within a polis, a, a communal, a, a communal in the communal space. Um, and the artist's job is to a certain extent to puncture uh, the, the self-identity of that polis, you know, it, the totality of that identity, to somehow give it a, against the grain something to fight, you know, so say that there's another voice inside of it, the, a democratic voice. And then on the other side, of course, is the artist who says, I'm, my, my, uh, my muse is, is my sole allegiance. It's the voice in my head, which is the voice that I must heed and I can't worry about everybody else. And there's the smart version of that, which of course is, uh, my, my pr precisely it's that voice which says no to the totality of the communality, that says there's a horizon of, of freedom, where human, human freedom has to fight, has to use a language that you don't understand sometimes. And if I'm talking to you, that language will never begin to grow and, and become articulated. I mean, they end up being the same argument, because it's, argument number two is still good for the polis in the long run if they'll care to listen to it. But they are, th those are very interesting arguments. Um, the, the problem with them is, uh, I, I think they exist in a bit of a vacuum when you're in precisely this kind of mono, money, neoliberal, capital-intensive uh, capital uh, uh, political situation where everybody's voice, you can, yeah, you can say whatever you want and you can self-publish it and sell it on Amazon, I'll get it for 20% off, great. Um, and there is that sense of, of uh, where the debate has lost its uh, intensity. There's a kind of common sense understanding that if you're going to be doing documentaries, you don't want to be doing right-wing uh, racist propaganda. You want to be doing stuff that uh, works for the good guys. But the question is, am I, should I feel guilty for doing art, shall we say, or are artists spoiled, guilty people? And that's still an interesting question to me. And I do think that there's a, uh, the, uh, there just needs to be a shift in the way we talk about that question. Mm -hmm. And how do you answer that question? Well, look, I mean, you start with this issue of responsibility. What is the responsibility? And you think if there's a responsibility of citizens, it's probably number one in a democracy to speak right, and to listen. And as we say, speaking truth to power, we're always in that truth mode. Uh, you're, that's your responsibility is to get that word out there. And at the same time, you also have to listen, which is really interesting because that means that you at least have to pretend to the extent to which you even pretend to yourself that you are persuadable. That is to say that somebody else might have a truth that's different from yours. So therefore, you have to suspend a little bit your own uh, privileged access to the truth. You have to say to a certain extent, the extent to which I'm out there speaking, I'm not speaking 100% of the truth because I have to listen. If I'm just speaking, what I'm doing is in a very totalitarian way simply telling the truth, quote unquote, giving the, the argument for the truth and you shut up. So the extent to which you're actually listening to somebody else, you have to bracket uh, your truth claims, at least to a certain, rhetorically to a certain extent. And the second thing that happens when you do that as a, as a citizen is you actually have to be rhetorically persuasive. You need to know the arts of rhetoric. You need to be a bit of an estate, in fact, a kind of an artist. And in democracies, uh, suppose I think citizens who are to a certain extent aestheticized. That is to say, they know how to talk and they know how to listen. They have to be attuned to those arts. And so everybody to a certain extent is an artist because if you're not, if you're just simply having the argument about the truth all the time and you have the truth and they don't, you immediately get into shall we say, a lack of bipartisanship. That is a, a real a sense of a, a, of, of a lack of accord uh, or of interest in democratic accord. So interestingly, your responsibilities are to a society that you presume as a democracy is one in which the truth is kind of set aside for a moment while you're discussing it, that you really are in a kind of art space. And you have to have that. If you don't have that kind of art space, then you don't have democracy, and then you'll never have the ability to get the word out to people you think once they get the word, once people really knew that Saddam had nothing to do with 9-11, then 
we would act as a, in a general will to correct the bads that are out there and do good. I mean, that is the assumption that underlies all of this, right? So in a, in a strange way, uh, what that does is it, it reprivileges art. Um, because unless you have uh, citizens who are educated, uh, aesthetically educated, are sophisticated, and are committed to those types of discussions, you don't have democracy at all. And what you have is a social space, a discursive space that is absolutely determined as it was under communist totalitarian rule as a space in which the truth was simply uh, demonstrated for you. And, once the, and that was all that was insufficient, that was all that was needed. So, I mean, that's the beginnings of that kind of discussion. So, sorry. No, I would just, you know, I guess I want to clarify my point too because I don't think, I don't think that documentarians have an obliga obligation to go make political films or, you know, go speak truth to power or whatever, however you want to frame it. I personally am driven by that motivation to some degree in a lot of my films, not all of my films, but to some degree, although I also agree that the art of it, is, you know, has to come first and foremost. Um, and similarly, you know, and, and probably to a greater degree, I, don't, I think that with fiction films that people don't actually have an obligation to it. I don't think they have an obligation to it. I think it's nice when it happens, but I don't think it has to happen every time. I mean, it's, I guess it's on some level like a First Amendment argument. You know, it, 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 you don't, you, you can have a range of positions and there may be some um, films out there that I don't agree with, but I, I want them to be out there. Or some art out there that I don't aesthetically agree with or politically agree with, but I think it, it deserves to get the attention it gets if it's good. No, I certainly never meant to imply that all artists should sort of take up this mantle. But if you do make a work in that direction, if you do make a work that deals with issues that are like that, at what point does a notion like the much maligned responsibility, you know, sort of come forth? If you're going to make a film about gays, at what point is there a notion that you say, well, gee, what am, what's going to be the effect of this? How is this going to affect the national debate? Or don't you think about that? Or you just make it and say, well, let's see what happens. Well, yeah, it's up to you if you want. Yeah. No, I, I, clearly, I mean, you, you have the fantasy that, will, like Brokeback, will get out there. But I think your first, uh, you know, what's interesting is your, your, your first allegiance um, is what is going to enable that fantasy. It's not as if they're opposed to each other. You know what I mean? I mean, if I'm only speaking to the Vanguard Party, that's cool, as long as the, van, you know, if the Vanguard Party's listening and they're going to be taking over, you know, 10 years, 20 years, or 100 years, I'm happy. But I'm, in a democracy, I'm also happy when that, that, that kind of discourse resonates and radiates out, but in a, in a democratic way, you know, in a way that speaks inside the culture. Um, and if it's bigger, that's, that's even better. Let me ask Michael and Rory, aside from both of you are producers and directors, you also have to think, though, at least on one level, about marketing, about getting your, your work out. What do you think in terms of, I mean, obviously, they're the established means now, everything from festivals to television, whatever. Do you think of other kinds of channels, other kinds of ways that perhaps are going to be important in terms of enabling more of this discourse? You spoke about the kind of control over the media. Are there ways around that? Or is that simply something we're going to have to accept is going to get worse? Well, um, I made a decision a couple years ago not to participate in the, in the mainstream media. Um, and it'll be, it'll be two years in January. I've not appeared on a single national television show uh, by choice. Um, Why was that? Uh, <clears throat> I really just got tired of um, uh, the yelling, <laughs> mostly at me. 
the editing, I first stopped, I stopped going on anything that wasn't live. Um, so unless I was able to write it myself in an op-ed that, you know, would be published or it was a live television show, say like the Today Show, where they would not edit me, um, uh, I, would, I would at least do that. But then, um, you know, it just, it just, uh, I just got tired of the noise and I thought, you know, this is going to be a lot better if I just concentrate on my own work and get my work out there and, you know, people can take it or leave it. And in fact, I, I've, I've got this, this new notion now that I, um, um, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get away with it on this next film because I haven't told Harvey yet. That, uh, <laughs> but I, I would like to um, uh, not uh, go out uh, to the press, do any press when a film of mine comes out and only speak to the press or the media in between films. I am so tired of watching television and things that seem to be so focused around the promotion of something. You know, when I was a kid, uh, and I remember the Jack Parr show, and I remember uh, uh, Dick Cavett and, and, and these, these shows where people would come on and have a discussion. Intelligent people would come on and have an intelligent discussion, maybe not necessarily on the same side of the issue or whatever, but, but there would be, uh, they weren't there to promote the latest book, record album, movie that's coming out this Friday. And they wouldn't, and Dick Cavett wouldn't go, let's go to a clip, or Jack Parr wouldn't say, you know, hold up the, the, the record album, or, you know, it was, it was, does anybody remember this? You know, when, when the discussion used to take place, and it was a national discussion, and it was intelligent, and, and, uh, um, uh, I mean, I can remember as a small child, I remember, the, actually, I remember watching the night your father was on with Jack Parr. I remember that night as a little kid and, and the impact that that had on me as a, as a child, just listening to that incredibly smart discussion. It doesn't take place anymore. So I, my feeling is, is that, that maybe the way to help stop that is not to participate in it uh, anymore. And... Um, um, and I don't know if this is a wise decision or not, decision or not but I just, I, I, I'm just so tired of, of the way things are in the media and I'm tired of the, um, I'll give you an example, actually, this is the last, uh, the last time I was on a TV show was the Today Show, uh, Katie Couric, uh, did the interview and in the commercial break, she tells me the story of how, um, uh, she got a memo from somebody up on top, somebody in the GEMBC thing, um, that uh, they had received a call from the vice president's office, and they were displeased with how she had treated a member of the administration. And they were essentially asking her to tone it down, to watch it, you know, et cetera. And, um, and she said, you know, it really does have an effect when you... You, when you get that kind of call. And I assume from the, at that time what she was saying was essentially Scooter Libby had called somebody at, at uh, GE to make this complaint. And I said to her during the commercial break, I said, why didn't you tell that story? You know, or write an op-ed about, you know, what you really do have to go through and how you really, you know, because you're accused of being liberal or whatever, you know, you've got to kind of overcompensate the other way. And uh, she said, oh, I can't do that. I'd, I'd, I'd lose my job. I said, what are you talking about? 
You can't, you can't lose your job. There's no other, that's the Katie Couric job. It only has one person to fill that job. What are you afraid of? No, no, I can't do that, you know. And then we went, then the, you know, okay, five, four, three, two. And boy, I just sat there going, fuck, I should just tell. I should just like, it's live. I should just say, you know, can I just tell the audience what you just told me during the commercial break? I didn't do it. I didn't do it, mostly out of respect for her and because... I, I still, when I hear somebody say they're afraid of losing their job, it still registers, like, <laughs> even though it shouldn't have with her. But, but, um, but I just, I wondered how often does that go on? Uh, I'm, I know how often it goes on all the time. And um, um, so I think that uh, the new media that's, that's coming up, the internet, the stuff that happens there, the ha stuff that's happening with new technology, and those of us who are able to get our films out and make them the way we want to make them without interference and get them out to the public, uh, that, uh, that's, I'm gonna just kind of place my bet on that and, uh, and, and try to avoid the, the, all the noise that I think has not helped uh, the discourse. And I think you're right, James. I, I, as, as strong as I believe in the things I believe in, I'm constantly questioning, you know, what's, you know, is what I'm saying really the truth or just am I full of shit? In fact, I wanted to start my own blog on my website and title it Head Up My Ass. Uh, because I really, you know, the, when I got booed off the stage at the Oscars uh, in the fifth day of the war for daring to say that I didn't think that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, uh, I didn't know. I mean, I wasn't a weapons inspector. I was, there very well could have been. I'm thinking that the whole time. I'm thinking, well, what do you know? <laughs> You're just a filmmaker, you know? I just, it was just a wild guess. I just lucked out that I was right, you know? But that's all it was. People come up to me on the street. Now, they, oh, I remember you. That was great. You said, I said, well, what the fuck? I didn't know, you know? It was just a guess. Uh, don't give me any credit for being a good guesser, you know? It's, so, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think it's good that people on our side continue to question ourselves and to... And the key moment for me in Bowling for Columbine where the, I changed the whole idea of the film where I started out with this attitude of we, we need more gun control laws and that'll solve everything. And then went to Canada and went to their office of st statistics and found out that they've got more guns in their homes per capita than we do. And they kill about 100 and some people a year. You know, of a population of 30 million. Uh, and it really blew my mind. It was like it, quite, it went up against my whole liberal thing about this would easily be solved if we just got rid of the guns. And it's like, they've got the guns and they don't kill each other. And the Swiss, you have to have a gun in every house because that's the law if you're a male head of household because they don't have a standing army and they don't kill each other. And in Israel, it's nothing but guns. And they don't kill each other, at least, you know. <laughs> I mean, you don't see Israeli kids going into the schools and shooting them up and you don't have a lot of domestic violence. and. And it, it totally, I loved the fact that it sort of blew up my, my set belief. And I, and I had then had to say, you know, maybe the NRA is right. The guns don't kill people, people, ex people kill people, except I would alter it to say, guns don't kill people, Americans kill people. What is it about us that makes us want to have a quarter billion guns in our homes and shoot each other? And, and only by all of us, allowing you know, some flexibility of thought to you know, continue in our heads and question ourselves, uh, will we, I think, get to a better place uh, with what we need to do. 
in terms of talking about this idea of questioning ourselves, kind of brings me, I guess, perhaps also thinking of the Columbia role of education. How is it that education should work so that, in fact, our students, our children, ourselves, become better questioners of media? In what way can that be, should that be, or is that part of a, a kind of curriculum, a curriculum that one can imagine? James? We don't have to imagine that my 10-year-old is at home right now, and one of her, she has, all kids have way too much homework, right? It's insane. I mean, it just drives me insane, but anyhow. Um, so she's been doing her homework all weekend, but her, the, she saved the best for last, which is to watch half an hour of television. This was an assignment. And I said, that's exciting. Why are we watching <laughs> half an hour of television? For and then she showed me the assignment, which of course, she had, to, she had to have a stopwatch, and she was gonna count how many commercials and how long a half hour show really was as opposed to how long it was, you know, as opposed to, it's not a half hour show, it's half hour, how many advertisements, and she had to count them and how long and all this kind of stuff. And it's part of a media, ecology, educate, you know, curriculum. Of course, she goes to this artsy-fartsy, crunchy granola radical school, the Manhattan Country School, um, <laughs> so, which was great. And, um, and they do this. They, this is how they, they're educating the kids to watch critically, uh, which is fantastic. So I think there's a lot more of that media education going on out there. And, you know, it is true. It's like, you know, even in um, our courses, and there's television classes, and there's film classes, you have to understand the vast, I, I say this to my students all the time at the film school, I said, you're not at film school. You don't go to film school. You don't make movies. You, you know, the movie the, in the theater, that whole thing is just a lost leader to get people to watch it on TV. So the vast majority of people who watch our movies, with some exceptions, um, are watching them uh, with about a third of the, it cut up with, you know, about a third of the experience being commercials. And yet that's never studied in film school. It's never studied in cinema studies classes. And so I think this, this kind of education is starting, which is great. Rory? Um, well, I guess I would just add that, you know, I, I do have some concerns about education and art. Um, primarily, again, going back to legislation, but the No Child Left Behind law has basically made it so that, you know, public schools in particular are really obligated to meet standards in science and math. And what's happened in a lot of the public school systems is that art has fallen aside. Um, and that's despite the fact that a lot of, you know, all of the studies have shown that people who do engage in art studies and art education do much better in math and science and on tests, but because these schools are so um, scared about losing their funding and their financing, they're basically cutting those programs. Um, so I'm very concerned about the state of art education in this country right now, and, and I think we need to focus some energy to make sure that you know these these new policies that are put into place include art as a priority. Michael. Yeah, I, I think in the public schools this kind of media literacy uh, thing doesn't really exist, and it really it is a problem. And uh, and the arts have been cut back dramatically across the country, and I think. Um, uh, just to cite the same studies that Rory has mentioned here, that the um, any time that you eliminate art and, and reduce art in a society, you reduce the amount of, of critical thinking, uh, and they go hand in hand. And uh, that's why uh, um, those filmmakers who are artists and who just make great, wonderful works of art, and, and, and perhaps there are no politics in that film, are providing to me uh, the same kind of important uh, contribution to society as those who make the, the films that are, say, strictly political. And, and unfortunately, those films that are strictly political and are works of fiction these days are, 
are fail miserably and I think do more damage to the cause that they're trying to help. I can't remember what the global warming film was a couple years ago, the big blockbuster. Um, anybody? Day after tomorrow. Day after tomorrow. Just I mean, when I saw it, I mean, half the audience was laughing at the film. It was so pathetically bad in terms of the sort of the whole you know liberal notion about the environment and and what it would do and it's it was just um, <clears throat> just just I, I didn't th I didn't think it helped any and I just last night I just I, I hate and I hate to say, I, I, I don't know if I, I really want to say this because I'm I'm not I, I'm I don't know how you feel James so I'm kind of loath to um, comment on someone else's film because it is to make a movie is just the hardest thing to do it is just grueling and and you are filled with self-loathing the entire time uh, that, that you're doing it and See, but as the executive you have self-loathing and hatred of everyone else too right. <laughs> right and and so I I I, I, uh, I went to see fast food nation uh, last night and uh, and um, and I noticed they've been using a quote from the Times in the in all their ads with my name on the and they put my name on the uh, the one sheet the poster. You know about the most essential film by an American di director since Fahrenheit 9/11 or whatever. And so I went to see it. And uh, I read the book. The book is incredible. The director, uh, if you know him, is incredible. Um, just a brilliant um, director. And the film was I just sat there just groaning and like just sinking in my seat and then I saw people leave and and a couple of people started laughing at the movie you know and it was like because it was full of all that kind of you know hitting all the right liberal notes we're supposed to hit the bad guys over the head with and it just it um, with no nuance and no no you know, kind of self-deprecating nature about itself, but a film that felt full of itself, and I, and I felt sitting there with what was a Times Square audience. So it was a, it was an audience of a mix of tourists and, you know, people that like to go to the movies in Times Square. <laughs> An explosive combination, that one. Well, have you ever gone down there? It's just such a... You have to fight! Just to get to the kiosk, uh, <laughs> but sometimes it's a good place to go because you yeah. get a. It's a great. It depends mix on of, the movie, actually. and it so depends on the movie. Yeah, no, no, I know. It's like I wanted to see Casino Royale there. Uh, it was sold out, so I had to go to the Ziegfeld, and I like I didn't want to see it at the Ziegfeld. You know, I wanted to see it with Times Square with James Bond. You know, so which by the way is the best James Bond movie I've ever seen. It's an incredible movie, um, but. Um, but the the, uh, the 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 audience there, I just I just thought, oh, this is you know, this isn't good, and because this is such an important issue, and um, um, and uh, people were just um, completely turned off, and they sat there and they felt the invisible wag of the finger that we on the left are so good at doing, and. Um, I just, it just, I don't know. I, I, I think so. Sometimes political films on the left are counterproductive to um, what you know we're attempting to do. Okay, let's uh, throw it open for some questions from the audience. Oh, I see there are a few. Yes. The question goes back to Fast Food Nation and 
uh, this viewer says that he found a lot of the information probably for many people was shocking and don't you think that in and of itself kind of gives the film I think a certain status? No, because people know, they're, first of all, they're watching a fiction film, so they don't know if the information is, is real or not. Um, it's interesting, you compared the film to Hal Ashby, um, that you thought it was similar to his films of the, of the late 60s and 70s, um, and Italian neorealists. I, 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 I really, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, because I, I really disagree with that, because and, and, Hal Ashby is an excellent example of what we need more of uh, these days. That... Um, when you watch Shampoo, um, the, the whole film takes place in a, essentially a 24-hour period during uh, Nixon's election day of 1968. And the, the subtext of that, of the political era, the times, and what was taking place was sort of all on in the background. And occasionally the characters would cross into what was going on that day. But what was more important to them was their own sort of, you know, egocentric, nihilistic sort of existence in Beverly Hills. And the, and the point he, in part, was making is that here this, the most incredible, important election of the time was taking place and they could give a rat's ass, you know, because they were, you know, consumed in their own thing. And had, had, it, had he flipped it, and it had it been about the Nixon election of Election Day of 68, it wouldn't have been, the I felt, the profound film that it was at the time when it came out. Um, at the moment in Harold and Maude, when there's just a very quick shot and glance of the tattooed number on her wrist, and that's all he says about it. And it says volumes about uh, who she was and what she believed in and why when, he gave, when Harold gave her the ring and she throws it into the pond and he says, why did you do that? And she said, so I'll always know where it is. Um, that, you know, that, that essentially it's a film about a Holocaust survivor. Hal Ashby chose to make a film about a Holocaust survivor and do it in a way that didn't beat you over the head or, um, you know, he, he, he honored the nuance of what I think people who like good films like to see and they like to... The thing, and I, and I struggle with this all the time because I'm thinking I want the audience to be a participant in this movie. I want, if I lay it all out for them or if I just kind of just constantly give them a barrage of this stuff, then they don't have to do any work. I want them to do some work. I want them to engage and I want them to leave the theater feeling that they were a participant in this and that they, you know, that they couldn't see coming what, what was happening, you know, in a, in a few minutes in the movie or whatever. I think all that, so, and, and Fast Food Nation does none of that. It's, you know, exactly what they're trying to say and you can see what's coming, you know, five minutes down the road and, um, I don't really want to attack this film. I, uh, you know, because I like let's, these guys. Let's but, move on. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, All the way in but, the back. But Hal Ashby, uh, it's a, yeah. uh, go see Hal Ashby. Great memory. Yes, in the back. Um, uh, sure. Thank you for asking. I'm doing a documentary for uh, HBO about Abu Ghraib, um, which I'm finishing, uh, hopefully on Wednesday. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, again, it's, I think, I, I mean, there's a lot of information that I found in researching that film um, that was shocking to me uh, because it wasn't out in the general public. And that this, to me, is one of the, you know, most significant ev events, um, certainly of our time, if not over the last, you know, century. I think, uh, 
that that people aren't informed about exactly what happened there and who was responsible and um, and the role and the influence that the administration had. Um, you know, right after the the scandal broke, the administration's response um, was. Uh, was very direct and you know they basically had everybody on their team say this was the role and the work of nine bad apples on the on the night shift um, and what I found is that it was a much more complicated picture than that um, so I hope that you know it's it's uh, it's going to be an insightful look at, at kind of what really went on at Abu Ghraib and um, we interviewed a number of the MPs and the guards who were involved um, in the abuse, as well as uh, um, a number of eyewitnesses, and then people who were involved in creating the policy, as, as well as people who are responding to the policy. Um, so it should be out. I guess first question or is a uh, statement about with the election, despite all the misgivings we might have about the Democrats, is there? any sense of ease that you have in terms of that maybe we went through bad years and now we've turned a corner or, or something like that. The, the second has to do with, uh, again, the idea of you know, feeling liberal in a way and talking, but also feeling that when we're talking that sometimes we almost inevitably feel like we are talking down that because we feel so many people are so misinformed by the media. Um. Uh, question one, I'm, I'm always hopeful, I'm just not so optimistic. Um, question two, uh, let me make the strong case, I'm going to go back to Art for just a, one minute, because I, I really I want, I want to make the strong case for um, this Art responsibility thing and why Art, uh, you know, if you, if you go at it from a slightly different angle, can be helpful here. And, and, um, and the political purpose of it. We know, you know, Plato, uh, Republic, don't let artists into the Republic because the philosopher kings are ruling in their devotion to truth and, and artists will subvert truth through kind of mimetic fictions that will take you away from the truth. And so art as against truth and as against a society that's devoted to truth has always had that kind of bad egg kind of feel to it. But of course, in my version, art and democracy work very well in this kind of dialogue, creating a space, a civic space of dialogue. But here's where you, you worry about being a liberal and you come off to you know finger pointing and everything else. Here's a strong case uh, uh, of the role of art as a kind of political, pro uh, that projects you out po politically in a very interesting way. And it comes out of Kant, who actually was there at the birth of what we think of art and artists, I mean, in the aesthetic, 300 years ago. The, the, our whole idea of artists and art and their civic is very new in terms of Western civ, right? It's not that, it, the specifics of it. And you know, he, had a very, he, he had a very interesting uh, moment of clarity that led to the third critique which was very simple. When you're, when you're seeing something, an aesthetic object that you love, that you appreciate, and you make what he calls a judgment of beauty about it, you just go, wow, that's beautiful. You're making a judgment that is purely subjective for any number of technical reasons that I won't spend the next three hours explaining Kant's uh, uh, account of. It's purely subjective, but it takes the form of an objective judgment. And anything that takes that form of objective, what he means by that is that it is, in its essence, communicable. You, when you have that experience, as we all have had, our favorite song, our favorite movie, our favorite, whatever it is, you have this experience that is deeply personal, but it's not solipsistic, because the, the structure of it, according to Kant, is that it is necessarily communicable to other people, to everybody in the whole world. Every other human being, universally, you can communicate it. Now, here's the rub. Kant also realized, and he says it straight out, you can never argue with anybody 
as to your judgment of beauty about something. So I always tell my students this is the third date rule. There's an attractive person, date one, date two, date three, things are moving along, and then you share with them that so-and-so is the greatest singer of the 20th century, or this is, you know, I loved Fast Food Nation, and they look at you <laughs> and they go, Fast Food Nation sucked! And you just, there's a moment of real intolerance, like, of real, like, oh, shit, this person sucks, too. I mean, I could never, you know, I mean, they're good looking, I might, but this is not going to go anywhere. And there's a real curtain that drops down. A lot down. of finger wagging here. Yes, but, but you are compelled to try to convince them that Bob Dylan is the greatest, or that whatever it is, or how Ashby is better than Kubrick. You're compelled. And in those discussions that you have had, I am sure everyone here has had those discussions, the both futility of them as well as the compulsion to have them, has you really live that. And what Kahn is saying, there's a politics to his aesthetics that I find very liberating, and, and has been, you know, the Hegelian turn of it, and we can, I won't waste time on it, but that, that there is a moment that, that, that through an aesthetic experience, a judgment of beauty, when you really have it, you are forced to go out and talk to other people, even though you know you can never force them to agree with you but you still have to have the conversation. And in those conversations, you make room for people. And I think that that's where, you know, uh, the lessons we learned from, even if you go back to the Havel-Kundera debates and through them, through the trucks, through the way that was working out, you start seeing that principle at work. Is that, and, and I think you can learn a lot about that in terms of political discourse too. I mean, everybody here has that same feeling that you, you, you maneuver in ways, you're dealing with people who may shut down the minute they see you coming. I mean, there's people who say, Michael Moore, curtain closed. Right? I mean, that's just, you are, you are now just a stand-in for a lot of things that, that, and yet, Michael Moore has probably done more to open up the political discourse in the country than almost anybody else. So it's a paradox, but it works. And I think you just keep going back to it. Yes. Uh, two questions. First, about uh, Rory Kennedy's opinion of the film Bobby, which has just been released, and will Michael Moore appear on PBS? <laughs> and when? Um. I have not seen the film Bobby, and I don't plan to see it. Um, I think that, uh, I, you know, I think from what I've heard and what I've read about the film, it's very much a celebration of my father in many respects, and it's very respectful of him. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't have any issue that it's out there and uh, out in the world. I just, it's, you know, about the assassination of my father, so I don't want to go see it. I had asked you that too earlier, and I felt really bad asking you too, because I, I, no, because I thought, you know, this is the part with us, uh, the, when you're in the public uh, light, that, um, that the public uh, doesn't understand that we're also, you know, <laughs> like people, you know, and, uh, and I was treating you as the member of the public, and I, not, and, and as a person in the public spotlight, and not thinking, I, I just, I felt bad for the last hour after I asked you about the movie, don't, so, don't, don't. well, uh, it's, you know, you're a human being, and I can't imagine what it would be like to lose one of my parents in that way, and, uh, um, uh, PBS, um, <clears throat> um, hmm. man, um, you know, Flint, uh, Flint, Michigan was the last city in the country, mid to large size city. Uh, that got a PBS station. We didn't have PBS till 1980. Um, um, so I've, I've never really been a big fan of it. Um, I think the only show that I haven't been on on television is McNeil Blair. They have no interest in talking to me. Um, uh, now it's just, I guess, Blair, right? Or 
I forgot one of them left, right? Yeah, the report. yeah, <laughs> the report. Um, the um, uh, hmm. yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do about the commercial television thing yet. I'm I'm sort of you know thinking it out, but I really I I put a lot of time into thinking about how to reach out to more and more people who are not just of my political bent, and you know I think most of us up here would agree that the the universe or the audience for a left-wing political documentary is if you could do a million dollars at the box office, that would be great, really good, actually. And, and no, I've been on. Yes, I have been on Charlie Rose. I, yeah. I think um, you should be. I think you should go on Mad Money. Mad Money. <laughs> Come on, show hands. I go more Mad Money. Yeah. Um, Gwen Eiffel on the uh, Washington Week in Review on PBS attacked uh, Fahrenheit pretty viciously. Um, the uh, but but to, what I was going to say about that that you know I I am a filmmaker who also as a citizen is on the left end of the political spectrum, and um, clearly there are not enough left wing audience members to you know uh, account for 120 million dollar box office. So the people who go to see my films are not people on the left, and they clearly there's uh, I mean what I try to do is try to think of a way to reach people who are who will at least consider some of the things I'm offering and I try to do it with good humor and with a heart um, most of the people that attack me have not even seen the films um, and the the right wing doesn't want them to see the films because they would then discover that um, I'm not the monster that they you know try to portray me as um, and that I do care about these things and that at the heart of Fahrenheit 9-11 is not about uh, George W. Bush, it's about uh, two women, essentially. A, a short scene with an Iraqi mother who comes out of the rubble of, of her home screaming at the camera and at God, why did you allow this to happen? And when will the Americans suffer the same thing? And the mother from Flint who lost her son in the war. Um, I talked to a Republican pollster after the election and he told me that they did polling on Fahrenheit, the Republicans did, during the campaign, because they wanted to know what kind of impact the film was going to have. And they found that a significant percentage of people who consider themselves Republican voters um, um, changed their minds and decided not to vote for Bush two hours later after they came out of the movie. It wasn't a huge percent. It was maybe three to four percent. But that election was going to be decided by three or four percentage points, and it completely freaked them out that um, that this movie could, and especially with Republican women, they weren't necessarily going to vote for Kerry, but they may not either vote at all, or they weren't going to be active voters and bring ten people with them. They would just go vote for Bush, and that was it. They were going to be a depressed vote. So they then decided. He told me this pollster that they had to really go after this film to convince Republicans not to go see it. They didn't care how many liberals, Democrats, or independents saw it. They had to convince their base, do not enter the theater. It would be like going into Satan's den if you went uh, to see this movie. Um, and the Harris poll did a poll, and they found that 10% of the audience for Fahrenheit called themselves Republicans. And of that Republican audience that went to see Fahrenheit, 44% um, uh, said they would recommend the movie to other people. They, they said that, that this was a good movie. 44%. These are Republicans. And 30% said they felt 
that the film treated President Bush fairly, which, you know, I wouldn't even go that far. So it's like, but it was, a, it was an amazing number, you know, and a scary number to Karl Rove. And, um, and so my feeling is, is I'm just trying to figure out how to keep persevering, moving forward, reach out in a way that more of them will even come see the next film because the next film is not a partisan issue, it's about health care and Republicans get sick too and, and they're being, being screwed by their HMO the same way a Democrat is getting screwed. So, um, but, um, you know, I just, I, just, I just wanted to say that and, and, um, um, and this whole, this litmus test or whatever that you were referring to, James, about the, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, I love that movie, you hate that movie and the sort of polarization that, that, that uh, takes place. I just I'll tell you just a quick funny story. Um, uh, uh, about 10 years ago, I uh, met George Clooney for the first time. And um, see, I can keep dropping these names like it's the old Jack Parr, Dick Cavett show, you know. <laughs> Anyways, he said to me, he said, he said oh, I, I just want to tell you, I loved Roger and me. And, and in fact, uh, whenever I go out like on a, on a, you know, a date, or I'm going like, to date somebody, the first thing I do on the first date is they have to watch Roger and me with me. And if they get it, then I'll go out on a second date, and if they don't, I, they're, they're, it's over. And I just, I, I felt really bad when I heard that, because I just imagined <laughs> a whole series of women in Los Angeles that, like, hate me because they got dumped because they didn't get the movie. I just, it's an unfair thing to do, too. Uh, yes, gentlemen in the back there. Yes, you, sir. I've got one right now. Uh, Called uh, yes. Why would any of us do a, a movie about uh, what a disease war is and why it should be abolished? Um, I, I'm distributing that movie right now. It's called The Ground Truth. Um, we, it's out on DVD. It's uh, by Patricia Folkright. It just made the uh, shortlist for documentary at the Academy this year, and it's an amazing film. It is a film that is told all in the voices of American veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and who are coming to terms with what they did and what they are going through as a result of it and becoming through that process and trying to kind of heal themselves of their uh, post-traumatic uh, stress, um, real leaders in the anti-war movement. And uh, we've had thousands and thousands and thousands of screenings with veterans in, in, uh, in presence. We've done, uh, AOL has come in to help out with uh, uh, national chat groups and, and, uh, and pages for these veterans. And it's been a great trans you know, transformative experience. We decided not to do a traditional theatrical release for the picture just to kind of qualify it and get the word out um, because we really wanted people to see it uh, in their homes and in their churches and we've gotten probably for the first time the mainstream denominations, the Presbyterians, Methodists and, and others to host these screenings all over um, and it's been a big red state um, event which has been great for us uh, to kind of have that dialogue which we started with Brokeback Mountain really um, you know when we ended up with something like 39,000 posts to the Tell Your Story on the website for Brokeback most of which came from small towns. So uh, it's been a great experience, and you can order it online on thegroundtruth.org. Uh, yes, sir. Um, uh, no. Question about product placement, as James explained that to his daughter. No, but I bring a lot of the crap home and distribute it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, that's a big issue right now. It really is. And uh, by the way, um, uh, soon Heineken will be the exclusive malted beverage for all Focus features. Just letting you know. <laughs> Not the ground truth. Yes, ma'am. You, you're right. 
question for Ori Kennedy, has she done any films about human trafficking? Um, I haven't, but I, I have had some discussions um, with uh, Julia Armand, who's the UN um, ambassador on human trafficking, on sex trafficking, and so I've actually had some meetings with her about doing a documentary on that subject and some meetings at the UN. So I am actually looking into that subject, and but I haven't to date. And I started production today in London with David Cronenberg on a film about human trafficking, starring Viggo Mortensen, <laughs> who I'm very happy to traffic in that <laughs> film. But yeah, it's a, it'll be out next year. Yes. Question for James Seamus. How does he see the success of several political uh, fiction films last year, such as Constant Gardner and Syriana, uh, Paradise Now? I, uh, having just released Catch a Fire, I view it with great nostalgia. Um, uh, okay. Why, why, so. but wait a minute, why do you think that is? Because I saw Catch a, yeah. Catch a Fire, and it's an incredible film. It's really a great film. Why, 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 what's the... I think our marketing was a bit of a tweener. We, you know, it's a very male-oriented film with the action, uh, with a very female-driven uh, uh, emotional core that w you really needed women to decide to go see it, and they, they, they decided not to go see it. And then that was too artsy-fartsy for the guys. So it was a bit of a tough one, but we love the film, thank you. Um, no, I think that you know, there's a lot of, uh, and I think you'll still see a lot more political stuff coming. You, know, you have to remember that all the films that went into release last year, were, they started pre-production in the wake of uh, Bush's second, um, the second election, his re-election. And I think there was a kind of, you know, in, in a, you know, among the sensitive people among us, there was a kind of despair that needed an outlet. And I think a lot of people found that, and, and it really, you know, all these films really connected with audience. But I'm very hopeful. I actually think there's going to be a lot more coming. Do you think that some of that interest in political film will also extend to more foreign language films being kind of seen by American audiences, or is that a whole other issue? A whole other issue. <laughs> no, it's terrible. it won't. <laughs> It's, That's it, sad. That's really sad. It's the yeah. great disaster. It I've is. Got a, it's, I, I, look, I teach at Columbia. You know, the Iranian cinema is probably the greatest national cinema of the last 15, 20 years. I, you might agree, I think. Um, uh, and, and the, you know, if this were 30 or 40 years ago, my students would be absolutely versed in the works of Jafar Panahi and Abbas Kiristami and uh, everybody. I mean, they would just be, these would be the films that they would be talking about constantly. And I'm screening for them for the very first time. I'm, I'm dropping them in my film theory classes, et cetera. And you know, at the same time, what that means is that when you get a filmmaker of the stature of Jafar Panahi, and he has a film that screens at the New York Film Festival, and he arrives at JFK, and he's uh, immediately chained to a bench in the jail at the airport for 24 hours and shipped home. And some folks are sending out emails, and we're circulating, and we're, you know, petition, we're trying to get uh, traction on this. And it's a drop in the, the nothing. Nobody could even, it, 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 because there's no currency. Uh, in the culture to what these guys have been doing, which is just unbelievably amazing and radical. Michael, answer that. Um, <clears throat> well, I think Paradise Now might have been my favorite film last year. Uh, that was an incredible movie. Um, and I, I do, I think, uh, from what I hear, I think actually a lot of political films are getting made or in the process of being made. And um, I think that Hollywood has seen that that uh, political film uh, can mean money uh, at the box office, and uh, can mean awards and stuff that they like. And um, and I think too that with the climate change, uh, the with the election, that uh, you'll see a, a little bit, you know, a little less nervousness. Uh, they won't be able to say the American people don't want to hear this, because uh, the American people last week said something very, very loud and clear. I think so. It. it uh, 
I think people who want to get those films made will have a, a slightly easier time right now, I think. I don't know. I'm hopeful. Question about the film, What the Bleep, if any of you have an opinion on that, which has a, more of a kind of spiritual drive than political. Who has seen it? I saw it. You see everything. <laughs> I go to Times too many Square. movies. <laughs> I saw it in Times Square. I Seriously, I did. It was at the Empire 25. <laughs> That's a, that's a great film, uh, Borat. Uh, it's um, um, it uh, what the bleep, and I think I, well, I think there's a there's a lot of room for films that are that would deal with spirituality. It's a tricky thing, but it, I knew nothing about any of that stuff, when, and so I liked it uh, on just on that level that I because I always like learning something new or something I don't know much about, and so it was um, you know it's an interesting film. Yes, ma'am. Is the educational system teaching children too much, or, or only or exclusively about America and not enough about the rest of the world? And is that one of the reasons, perhaps, why people aren't more critical? Yes. <laughs> I think that this panel uh, called Film and Citizenship, uh, you wouldn't see a discussion like this in many other Western democracies because it would be like having a panel called Living and Breathing, you know, the, ne the, the need for air in order to live. I mean, because I think in other Western democracies, uh, you know, just because of whatever you are, whether you're a filmmaker or a chemist or whatever, um, you are engaged as a citizen uh, on whatever level you're engaged as. Do you, do you, you're from Australia? Do you know who the Prime Minister of New Zealand is? No. You don't? The, the country next to you? Yeah. You don't know who the, who's running it? No. That's okay. The, the more that Mr. Howard turns your country into ours by doing, you know, like, <laughs> you know, he really admires Bush and Reagan and these guys, and he's, uh, uh, you know, I think that there, there's a lot of problems in Australia in terms of the Americanization, right, of your country and your education system. Um, and we don't know many things as Americans about the rest of the world. And most Americans here could not tell you who the Prime Minister of Canada is. Anyone? Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper? Are you Canadian? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> What's the capital of? Uh, the question is, are you Canadian? <laughs> I'm not Canadian, but I could tell by her voice that she was the saboteur. No, I think it's, I, you know, and it, and it leads to why we don't get to see foreign films. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, when James, or I mean, we used, there used to be film societies on campuses, and it used to be a cool thing to do to go see a lot of foreign movies. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the, even in New York, in the, in the so-called art houses, uh, very hard time seeing these films. Like the Iranian films, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that's, that's the most incredible stuff of the last uh, decade or so. And um, I saw one at the Tribeca Festival there last year, uh, uh, Men at Work. Did you, did you see that one? Um, boy, geez. It's a little film about these four guys uh, coming back from a ski trip, which right away I'm thinking, Iran and <laughs> a ski trip. 
I was just like, well, I'm just a typical American. <laughs> I don't, when I think of Iran, I don't think of four guys with skis. I, I don't know. But yeah, there you go. Um, and the whole movie is about, they come across a boulder that's sitting on a cliff along the side of the road. And it's all about, um, they, they decide to get out and try to push the rock over the cliff. And they can't make it move. And the next 80 minutes of the movie is about them trying to push that rock uh, off, the, uh, off the cliff. And it was... <laughs> Again, one of the best movies I saw last year. It was just uh, uh, fascinating and, and everything that it was trying to say about the larger Iranian society with these four guys trying to move an unmovable rock. Um, so that's my take on it. Okay. Uh, all right, one more. Yes, ma'am. Okay, to go back to our early sticky question, do uh, filmmakers have the responsibility to give the right information, correct information about a country, a religion, history? No. Um, Borat, people here saw Borat, I assume. I have my problems with the film, but one of the things I don't have a problem with is the fact that his producer, right, Ken Davidian, portrayed by Ken Davidian, who's uh, they're constantly you know, speaking and, uh, to each other and it's subtitled. Well, Ken is speaking in Armenian. Right? If you know Armenian, which I don't, but my wife does, um, you, you understand what he's saying. That's what is being subtitled. And clearly a correct idea of what an Armenian is and Armenian, the Armenian nation and its aspirations and its realities is not being transmitted in this movie. It's just not. Um, and I think that opens up, I'm not saying flatly, oh, that's so great. Uh, uh, and in fact, I think the film opens up so many issues, uh, very, very thorny issues about, you know, I mean, I, I, again, I won't go on forever, but what I'm just saying is there is no rule. Does that mean that I like people to go out and be racist and uh, xenophobic and idiotic and stupid and aggressive and dumb? No, of course not. Um, but I, I'm very suspicious that any work gets done when one says, I have a responsibility to do the good, the just, the true, the whatever, and then you just, you're stuck a little bit. Then suddenly you don't have cultural moments like Sasha Baron Cohen going in there and just kind of ripping up the American kind of cultural political matrix a bit. And you, know, he, he's not, the, you don't have that sense of engagement. So, um, so that's my answer. Lori? Well, I think, that, I think that the standards are different for documentaries and especially if you're making a documentary where you're purporting to tell the truth, I think it's very important to tell the truth. Um, you know, the truth can be fuzzy, obviously, and there's different interpretations to, to truth in certain cases, but I think um, ultimately it's important, and, and you know, especially in a, you know, a, a documentary about social issues or that's dealing with a political event or a historical event that you've got to be accurate, you know, you've got to be accurate. I agree. In a documentary, uh, your obligation is to get the facts right, but the truth is your truth and your truth could be right or wrong. And, um, and I think there's a big difference uh, between the two. And I'm, if you followed my career, you know I've had to deal with that since Roger and me. That, um, um, and I've got to the point now where it's like with, at, at, when Fahrenheit came out, I offered $10,000 to anybody who could find a single fact in the film wrong. And I still have the $10,000 check. Um, because, uh, but the opinions in the film are mine. And they could be right or wrong. <clears throat> I mean, I think they're right, but I could be wrong. I mean, I don't know if I'm right. I think I'm right, you know, but I might not be right. And you need to ask questions. You need to question me. You need to be critical thinkers when you watch my work and, and take out of it what you take out of it and form your own truths uh, from it. Um, 
Borat. It's not about Kazakhstan or anything about, I think he just looked at the map and picked the funniest name that he thought was good for comedy. And, and, uh, and Ken speaking uh, Armenian and Sasha speaking Hebrew. And, uh, um, and the film is about us. It's not about you know Kazakhstan. So I agree with James. I don't think you do have a responsibility other than to the in fiction, to the to the uh, to the you know the art that you're trying to create and the truth that you're trying to you know present. Um, and I think you have a right to take certain truths and upend them uh, in, in the name of your art to make an entertaining and, and artistic uh, film. And um, so I, I just don't think it's good for artists to get too rigid about that uh, sort of thing. Um, I think it ends up with a lot of bad art. Um, so. Okay. I uh, want to thank our panelists very much and to tell everyone we have a reception for the entire audience in our gallery here, the Furman Gallery, as soon as you come out, where perhaps we'll have a chance to talk about more of these issues uh, amongst yourselves and perhaps with us for a while as well. I want to thank James, Rory, and Michael very much for being here. And thank you all very much for coming. <laughs>